Welcome to Movable Dough, the podcast where I interview and promote living composers. Join me as I talk with composers about their current projects, their past successes and setbacks, and their personal journeys. For more information about this podcast, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. Today, I will be speaking with Brian Tate. Brian is a Vancouver, Canada-based vocalist, composer, arranger, pianist, percussion, choir director, and educator. He has twice received Vancouver's Jesse Richardson Award for Original Theater Music, and his award-winning choral compositions and arrangements are performed worldwide. In 2010, Brian formed Vancouver's vibrant 100-voice City Soul Choir, and he has a love for working with people and a passion for the arts. Brian Tate, it is a pleasure to meet you. Welcome to Movable Dough. Oh, thanks, Steve. A pleasure to meet you as well. Thank you. All right. Now, when researching my guests, I always start with their online bio, and I always look for something that sort of piques my interest, uh, something that pops out at me. So I read that you received your Bachelor of Music degree from University of British Columbia, but then yes. further music studies took you to London, Toronto, Ghana, Cuba, Oakland, and New Orleans. So what was <laughs> what was that path like? How did you end up in all those varied places? Well, it's yeah, it's it's been an interesting and unexpected uh, path. I um, I finished my uh, my bachelor degree at UBC with a major in composition, and I, I was singing in in choirs at the time, but I was more of an instrumentalist. I was a trombone player and interested in studying more orchestral conducting. And I just thought there wasn't a lot of opportunities in Vancouver unless I went back to do a master's degree. And I thought if I did that, I'd probably try someplace else. Um, so I had some connections. Uh, my, my grandmother was from England. And I at the time, you could get a parent or grandparent visa uh, to work in England. So I thought uh, I had some connections in London. Um, actually, what had happened is I'd, I'd met Neville Mariner, who was guest conducting the Vancouver Symphony, and I had a talk with him about there. And he he encouraged me to go and and said I could come to any of the rehearsals of St. Martin's in the Fields. And uh, so that was enough for me to to take the chance. And uh, so I it was it was tough in the sense that I was not enrolled in anything and, you know, like taking uh -huh. classes. But. Uh, it was just a great opportunity to uh, to go to rehearsals, to meet orchestra players, um, to get a little uh, casual work myself as a, as a trauma player. And I did get some wonderful conducting opportunities that I don't think I would get anywhere else. And uh, of course, the, the, the music scene there, just some of the stuff you get to hear is amazing. So I did that for about a year. And uh, Real, I missed you know being back in Canada and back with my connections. So I moved back to Vancouver for a time, and then <clears throat> I moved to Toronto for three years, again looking for for bigger musical opportunities. And uh, at the time, as a composer, the uh, there there was a lot of grants available, especially in Ontario. So I was lucky enough to make some good connections and receive several commissions. And uh, the Royal Conservatory of Music started their orchestral training program, which has been going ever since. And this is back in 1980, I think. And uh, they took on six conducting apprentices to work with, uh, to observe the orchestra and to do master classes with their guest conductors. And I got to be one of those 
young conductors. So that was amazing because we had guest conductors like Eric Leinsdorf, uh, Andrew Davis, and uh, just a, a wonderful group of conductors. So that was that's more my classical uh, background, but at the same time, I, I had a jazz background and an interest in jazz and popular music and in world music. Uh, and when I went into choral music seriously, I had uh, I worked with nine seasons with a group in Vancouver called the Universal Gospel Choir, and they specialized in sacred music from a lot of different traditions, but particularly black gospel music. So. I got to work with a lot of really great black artists who, you know, came from the church, really knew the tradition and taught me a lot uh, about that music. Um, we uh, I've taken choirs to Cuba, I think, seven or eight different times because uh, the music scene there is so amazing, both the, the classical choral scene, but also the, the folkloric traditional music scene, which is a big interest of mine as a as a drummer and percussionist and uh and that's what led me to Ghana uh, with a colleague of mine who was also a drummer to study the traditional music of, of Ghana and West Africa. Wow. <laughs> that, is, that is quite the journey. It is. Yeah, it's, it's been it's just been so wonderful to have those opportunities. And, and uh, you know, people in, in the music world tend to be very, very generous. And, and the, the people I got to work with both conductors and, and musicians and players were, were incredibly generous and really appreciative of, of the fact that someone from outside their culture was, was genuinely interested in learning about their culture and their music and, you know, the proper way to perform it and that sort of thing. So what do you think it was the catalyst that turned you to choral music? Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I sang in uh, choirs in elementary school, but the, the music programs then were nothing like they are today. There were nothing structured about it. It was just a music class, you know, where you would you would sing together. Uh, there was no band in, in middle school. I didn't start playing an instrument until high school. But um, uh, my grandmother lived with us uh, and died when I was 11, but she sang in a church choir and she sang around the house a lot. And I think I probably picked some of that up from her. Uh, there was not really, interestingly, there was not really a choral program in the high school I went to, but there was a very, very strong jazz program. And that I was just totally over the moon for that. And, you know, being a trombone player, playing in the stage band, and uh, I started my own little ensemble. So I was a total instrumentalist at the time. And then when I went to UBC, I started singing in university singers and Vancouver uh, cantata singers and uh, just kind of fell back into it without without even a thought you know it just felt like such a good fit for me uh, it actually took me a lot of a lot of years to realize this is really what i should be doing because at the time you know choral music was was a great pleasure and it was a sideline for me who was an instrumentalist as i considered myself that you know and i think back on those times and the, the greatest pleasure I ever had was singing in choirs, both in university and the music camps that I went to as a staunch instrumentalist, but I'd also sing in the chorus. And those are the memories I have of, of singing in the chorus. So, you know, better late than never. It took me a lot of years after that uh, to, to pretty much full-time dedicate myself to choral music, but uh, I'm, I'm certainly glad I did. 
So what sort of music were you listening to when you were in high school and growing up? Oh, growing up, it was it was pretty much, you know, top 40 pop music, that sort of thing. Um, aside from that, I, uh, you know, my parents were not really into music. The Any records they had were strictly, you know, middle of the road elevator music kind of stuff. But they did have a friend of them gave them a Harry Belafonte album. And I had never heard music like that before. Uh, and that just blew my mind. I just loved uh, the music, the presentation, the call and response. I'd, I'd never heard anything like that before. And the only other exposure I had to different musical styles, like so many people of my generation, was the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> uh, you know, you'd see great gospel artists, jazz artists, opera artists, uh, that um, in, in my household and in my world, you just wouldn't see. But that, that music really, really captured me. And my, my elementary music school, my elementary school music teacher, I think was really ahead of her time because we did a lot of world music at the time. I remember hmm. learning African music and, and singing music in African languages, uh, singing some traditional Hawaiian music. And, 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 you know, it was something that really stuck with me. Uh, and when I was 12, I think I got a set of drums and started playing drums, you know, in rock bands, that sort of thing. And that that really got my interest going in not only drumming, but percussion and hand drumming. And so that led me to West African drumming styles and Afro-Cuban styles. And uh, so it was a great, uh, it's, it was a wonderful sort of adjunct to have with a classical training. I think the two of them complement each other well. Yeah, absolutely. So when you started writing music, when you started decided you wanted to be a composer, were there other composers that you were looking at that were influencing the way you wrote? Um, when I when I really started getting interesting and interested in composing music was in high school, primarily playing in the stage band and and writing for band for big band music. Uh, the biggest influence at the time, my my band teacher did a lot of uh, lifting and transcribing of arrangements that were not necessarily available. And, and one, of the, one of the pieces that he latched onto was the music from Peter Gunn uh, yeah. by Henry Mancini, which to this day is some of my favorite music. And that, that really blew my mind, really opened me up to uh, some of the big band music of the time. And uh, he loved uh, Stan Kenton, and um, not only the traditional bands, but like the Buddy Rich band and Thad Jones, Mel Lewis. So I started just uh, from the Henry Mancini arranging book. I just started writing for band and, and for big band music. And then also I started a little combo and uh, I was using uh, Miles Davis ensemble, sort of the, the late 60s, you know, Wayne Shorter kind of beginning of the fusion stuff as, as an inspiration and then writing in that style as well. But it was at the, the end of high school and probably with some of the music we were playing in concert band that I started getting interested in, in classical music and really knew, other than when I'd studied piano as a kid, I really didn't know that much about it. So by the time I went into UBC, I was, I was totally into the whole classical scene and especially the orchestral repertoire. Uh -huh. I played in the Vancouver Youth Orchestra for, for a couple of years, as well as the University Orchestra. Uh, so that gave me a, just a great grounding in, in standard repertoire. That's great. I wanted to ask you more about the, uh, the City Soul Choir. 
they founded this back in 2010. Was this because you saw a need in Vancouver or, or what was the story be behind forming that? Well, I had been, uh, I'd been doing community choirs for, for some years leading up to that and with a particular interest in world music and, and gospel music. And uh, I, as I'd said earlier, I, I had eight or nine seasons with Universal Gospel Choir, which is, is still going strong in Vancouver and just was a great, great uh, uh, learning experience for me. And uh, when I left that, I really didn't have anything to replace it for a while. I was singing in a, in a world music trio and we did some, some gospel music, but it was all a cappella, small ensemble stuff. And I, I missed the big ensemble. Uh, so my my wife, who's also a singer, who who uh, manages the choir and does a fantastic job, produces all our concerts. She's got a great skill for that, which allows me to be, you know, music director and just only wear a few hats as opposed to all of the hats. Uh, she'd been after me for a couple of years to start a new choir, and we kind of put it out to our community of singers. Does this feel like the right idea, the right time? Kind of using the Universal Gospel Choir as a model, but not sticking strictly to sacred music, which is where the term came from, the soul choir. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it's a, it suggests soul music and R&B, but it also suggests soulful music of, of all styles. And uh, there was a tremendous amount of interest to, to get something like that started. And uh, we started doing auditions, and I think... I think within three weeks, we had auditioned 100 singers wow. and uh, launched the choir. And I'm, I'm happy to say uh, we're now living in Victoria. So we left Vancouver two years okay. ago, but happy to say that one of my uh, colleagues is now directing the City Soul Choir, and it's as strong as ever, um, which is what we always want, right? If we right. If we build something and leave it behind, you you want to leave it in as as good as or a better place than than you left it. So uh, we're really really happy that that's doing so well, and we just launched a um, new choir here in Victoria, the Capital Soul Choir, uh, in August. With uh, all the COVID challenges, we started rehearsing outdoors in a in a covered walkway, all concrete, so lots of lots of good acoustics. Mm -hmm. um, Maximum of 20 singers, three meters apart, ventilation, singing with masks. And it was kind of an experiment, uh, you know, is this going to work? And can 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 people, you know, sing with masks and can they hear each other? And it actually worked really well, uh, especially with a small number of singers who are really confident, you know, singing yeah. their own parts. So we've been doing that since August. And just last week, we, we found an indoor venue that satisfied all the... Uh, health requirements that we needed and we've moved indoors and had our first indoor rehearsal in our new venue with our new accompanist Darcy Phillips as well uh, so that's a big that's a real milestone for us we're really thrilled that that we're able to do that and we feel like we can we can do it safely that's really important yeah so I know in addition to conducting I know you've done clinics uh, with many different groups um, mm. what what is your favorite part about working with young singers? Oh, it's it's so inspiring to work with young singers. You know, they're they're so keen. They're so keen to learn. They have uh, they have such great energy. Uh, 
it's funny because, you know, often I'll do a clinic or I'll go into a school and, and, and work with, with kids or young people for a while. And they'll, they'll say, wow, thanks so much for coming out and, and giving us so much. And I, and I will be thinking, no, you have no idea. This was for me. <laughs> I'm the one that got the better deal uh, out of this. Um, it's, it's wonderful to do that. I, I had the great pleasure of teaching at Studio 58 in Vancouver, which is a fantastic theater school for professional actors in Canada. And there, there's a um, vocal component and a choir component there as well. So I got to coach singers in musical theater and I got to direct the student choir there for 20 some years. Mm -hmm. And that was just the high point in my week. That was such a tonic to be among all that young energy. Uh, so it's, yeah, young singers are, are great because they really, they really get into the music and what it's about and what the text is about and, and they have the energy to really deliver. Yeah. So I know in addition to choir clinics, I, I saw on your website that you were also an organizational speaker. So mm -hmm. I, I read this on your website. Brian takes the elements of creativity, intuition, and improvisation from the performing arts and transforms these elements into powerful interactive group experiences that develop leadership, innovation, and team building. So let's talk about improvisation just for a second. Okay. <laughs> okay. So first of all, in the music, uh, music realm, how do you as a music educator help choral singers grasp and feel comfortable with improvisation? Well, that's a great question. Well, uh, one of the things I've uh, always had along with regular rehearsals, because uh, so much of the music we do involves soloists and involves, whether it's gospel or R&B style music, it involves, you know, a degree of improvisation uh, mm -hmm. from the singers. So I've always had a soloist hour where people come for coaching and just work on the idea of, of improvisational singing. Um, and it really starts with just, you know, knowing the knowing the melodic line really well, being able to sing it straight and being very solid with that, and then start to loosen up the phrasing around it so it's not so much on the beat and in the groove, so it can, it can loosen up a bit. And then just, you know, following one's instincts to get away from the melodic line and, and embellish it. And a lot of this music has chord changes that you can take repeated patterns and, and sing over top of them, and they will work with those particular chords. Uh, and so there's there's a gradual stepwise process that you can take singers from just singing the basic tune to being very free about improvising a line over top of it. Uh, um, and, you know, a lot of it has just to do with confidence and, and people trusting themselves and the willingness to make mistakes and the willingness to have it go off the rails. Uh, and the more you're willing to do that, the more you learn from it and, and the quicker you can start to establish skills. Um, so it's really the fear. And of course, you know, that singing in any way has so many fears and insecurities that go with it. As, as we all know, you know, people yeah. who aren't experienced singers or confident singers, they'll, they'll, you know, you could put a gun to their head and they wouldn't sing <laughs> uh, in a lot of cases. So even with confident singers, you know, improvisation is another element where they feel, oh, this is way too exposed and way too vulnerable. So you basically, you create an environment of, of, of trust and safety and, uh, you know, allow them to, and I love, I do it as a masterclass. I, I always enjoy doing group 
work as opposed to just one-on-one. Um, because then you get used to you're singing to people as opposed to just in a room yourself. And, and the other thing is there's so much one learns observing the process mm-hmm. as opposed to just being on the spot. You know, yeah. sometimes being on the spot, you, you, you work in, in something unfamiliar for a half an hour and you make progress and you have little aha moments and you go away and you think, well, what the hell just happened? <laughs> you know, I just, I can't remember anything. But if you're watching somebody else go through that process, they'll, chances are they will achieve a lot of the same things that you're trying to achieve, but you're not on the hot seat. Yeah. So it's a, it's a way to assimilate it by watching other people together. And everybody supports each other because they're all in the same boat. Right. So is that sort of how you uh, how you broach the subject when you're talking about leadership skills rather than music skills? Uh, watching each other and learning from each other, being willing to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I got into the whole organizational thing uh, because I had done a lot of uh, presentations and teaching and I was very, very comfortable in front of a group and I never use notes in front of a group. I just kind of extemporize and I started doing speaking engagements through a couple of national agencies um, for business people on the topic of creativity. And it was all entirely through using models in the arts, in the performing arts, in the visual arts, uh, so there's so many metaphors that one can get to translate to organizations. And then I uh, got hired to work at the Banff Center uh, in Alberta, which is which is a uh, wonderful center for, uh, it has a very strong arts component, but it also has a very strong corporate training element to it. And I was one of three facilitators that taught a team building program for several years there. And I was the, uh, I, you know, I was the wacky guy. The other two were more, were more legit people who had worked in business. And I was the arts guy who would bring in these, these crazy exercises for people to do that would involve music, that would involve visual arts, that would involve theater. Um, and I loved doing that. And, and it was something people got a lot out of because it really, it put them on the spot. But there was always a parallel to draw in terms of how you can take this back to an organization uh, and make it work. So I did that uh, for a number of years. It was very rewarding, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so one last question before we get to your music. So your music is very well known, but like many composers, those that perform your music know your name, but mm-hmm. may not know a lot about you personally. Mm-hmm. Right. So what is something about your life outside of music that you think people wouldn't readily know? Do you have <laughs> hobbies that you that you enjoy? I mean, what what can you tell people? Um, well, probably the main thing that that most people would not know is that uh, I've also had a strong background in visual arts and primarily I'm a cartoonist. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's that's also something I've done since I was a kid. And I have done it at various points in my life, uh, but I've never had the time to devote to it that I've wanted to until, I mean, this is one of the sort of inadvertent advantages of a pandemic. Right. Um, Because, you know, my music career came to a screeching halt uh, pretty much. But of course, one can do visual arts very easily in one's own home. So I was able to do something I wanted to do for years, which is really devote a lot more time to uh, to cartoons, to a comic strip that I'm working on, 
uh, and also to painting. I'm a I'm a painter, so wow. uh, we've got I've got my own uh, studio here in my in our new house in Victoria, which is fantastic. That's just for visual arts. So is this a a comic strip that you are hoping to get in a newspaper somewhere, or publish in a book, or what are you planning to do with that? Well, at at the moment, I'm just building up sort of a body of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a daily, a lot of people don't realize this, but a daily comic strip is, that's like a full-time right. job. <laughs> that's a 40 to 60 hour a week job to uh, to put that together. And I'm not quite prepared to dedicate that much time to it. So right. I'm, I'm just kind of doing it as I have the time for it. And when I have enough material, then I may look for a publisher. It's, it's I'm, I'm lucky in that there's never been a time I think in history where there's been such an interest in comics, comic book art, in mm-hmm. graphic novels, graphic memoirs, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a huge field. So it's, it's fortunate for me in that, in that way. But at the moment, I'm just putting my stuff out on Facebook and I'm about to uh, get onto Instagram and, and start getting it out that way. That sounds awesome. I look forward to it. Yeah. Thanks. All right. So after the break, we'll come back and we'll listen to some of Brian's compositions. Welcome back. My guest today is Brian Tate. All right, so let's turn to talking about some of your compositions. Sure. I'd like to talk about the piece that first introduced me to your work, Gate Gate. Yeah. Okay. So first, the text. This is a, a Buddhist mantra in Sanskrit. Gone, mm. gone, all the way over, everyone gone to the other shore, enlightenment, svaha. So mm. is this a, a text that you found, or did somebody introduce you to this text, or how did you come about it? I've been familiar with it for some time. I'd, I'd had an interest in in, in Buddhism, and I, I I had a practice for a while, and I would sit with groups and uh, and study the text. And, and and this is this is from a very very prominent text uh, called the Heart Sutra, uh, and the text basically talks about the intrinsic nature of things. That that oh boy, that's a whole topic <laughs> to itself, but. But that you know that nothing is fixed. That things are full of possibilities, and uh, after at the end of the text is that little tag. It's like a little epilogue uh, that says "gate gate paragat." Gone, gone, everything gone, gone to the other side. So it's it's the it's the term "gone." It's just like the term "emptiness." Is we think of it as oh, I feel so empty. It's a terrible thing. But in in Buddhism, emptiness simply means it's an openness to possibility that something is not fixed as one thing, that it has possibilities. So in this case, gone, gone, everyone gone, it, it means transformation. It means crossing from one, from ignorance to enlightenment, from uh, one stage of life to the other, from death to whatever comes after death. Uh, so it's a celebration of a passage, essentially. And it is a celebration. It's, it's, it's considered to be, that's where the svaha comes in. It's like mm-hmm. a shout of joy. That yes, things are things are transitioning the way they're meant to transition. Uh, so I'd, I'd always loved this text, and I was I was working with uh, a, a small community non-auditioned choir at the time, and I wanted to write something for the choir. And I started working on this piece, and I remember I just uh, I had the, the basic idea for it. I worked on it in chunks. So I'd bring a chunk to a rehearsal and they'd learn it and they'd go, wow, this, we like this. Let's, let's have some more. And I'd go and put the other chunks together. And uh, that eventually became Gate Gate. Now, this was long before 
I had had anything published or really understood how vast the choral world was uh, and the choral publishing world was. So I didn't even attempt to look for a publisher. The piece had been around for a number of years. There were some choirs in Vancouver that had been performing it. And one of my colleagues said, you know, you really should look into getting this published. And I, uh, so I sent it to a couple of publishers, uh, never heard back from one. The other one said, we're interested in the piece. Uh, so, you know, it'll be on the, it'll be out on the stands in a couple of years or so. And I just thought that just seems really uh, excessive. And someone had told me about earth songs and, mm -hmm. and said, this, this sounds like it's right up their alley. And, uh, so what had happened is one of the funniest stories I have in, in my choir career. So I sent the music to Earth Songs, uh, having been wisened up a little bit to, you know, that the, in the choral world, like one to two years is not an excessive period of time for something to appear on the shelves, given, given the turnaround time. I heard back from Ron Jeffers, who's since left us, unfortunately, but he was running Earth Songs at the time. I heard back from him a day later and he said, I want to publish this. I want to have it in print within the next 10 days so that we can send it to ACDA to the National Conference for their multicultural reading session. And this kind of blew my mind. And at the time I said, well, that's great. And what's ACDA? I, I, I wasn't, <laughs> I hadn't even heard of that. And uh, so we did some quick proofs back and forth. And, and sure enough, it was in print. They accepted it for the session. Uh, this was 1999, I think, in Chicago, and um, and then they they called me up and said, "Are you coming to the conference? Would you like to conduct your piece?" And I said, "Well, sure, you know." And I'd I'd been to I'd been to a few reading sessions in Vancouver held by local music stores, and you know, you'd have I don't know 150, 200 music educators would show up to to go through music, mm -hmm. and. Um, so I went to the conference in Chicago, and of, of course, all these reading sessions are concurrent with different departments, and this right. was the multicultural session. And I walk into this room to present my piece, and there are 1,100 people <laughs> in the room, all with a copy of my piece. And now the, now the penny is starting to drop. I'm starting to realize, oh my goodness, this, the opportunities here are, are amazing. And um, it went over well, it sold well, and it's, it's one of those pieces uh, that's still selling well today. It still, it still sells. It was just, it was kind of a fluke. Everything about it was a, was a fluke, but um, I'm just thrilled that fluke. people, it was a good <laughs> fluke and, and people still seem to enjoy it. And that's just a, it's just a delight to me. All right. Well, let's take a moment and we'll listen to a bit of Gate Gate performed by the Universal Gospel Choir. Thank you. 
So let's next talk about Hold Me, Rock Me. Mm-hmm. So I've read several people's interpretation of this piece out in the blogosphere. Sometimes going, you know, very strict religious view of the text, sometimes more general feelings of hope and comfort. You know, since you wrote the text and the music for this piece, what were you thinking as you wrote this? Well, this was one of those pieces that came, uh, this is kind of another fluke. Uh, I was on holidays at the time and I had been performing um, as a jazz artist, both as a vocalist with a combo, but I'd also been doing a lot of vocal looping. And this was when the whole phenomenon was fairly new. This is about 25 years ago. So I had a, I think the only piece of technology at the time was a boss loop station, which I still have, still use from time to time. And I would just, uh, I'd just plug it in and I'd start improvising with it and, and creating textures and lines. And this piece came out of uh, just improvising, you know, casually and then layering it. And the text, and it's interesting because usually the, the text is the harder part of the piece for sure. You know, when people think of you as a composer and you happen to write the text, but they still think, oh, he's a composer. He writes the music. And, you know, how hard is it for you to write the music? And the answer is not a fraction of how hard it is to write, you know, a good text. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the if the text is there, the music happens very, very quickly. And this was one of those pieces where the, the melodic idea was there and the text just simply came. The words just seemed to fit it. Hold me, rock me, calm and easy. And one line led to another, and it's felt a bit like a spiritual. So the verses, uh, the verses reflected uh, the the general feeling of a lot of spirituals that that I'd known and 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 performed. And uh, the piece just kind of wrote itself. And it's always a it's always a gift when that happens because uh, you know a lot of times it'll be kind of in the middle where. Some things will happen very organically, but then you have to struggle to shape yeah. them. And then other pieces, you just struggle, you know, <laughs> you just struggle away. And then the other end of that is a piece like Hold Me, Rock Me, which just comes out like it's already there floating in the air and you just happen to, to snag it. Uh, so I had no pre- preconceived notions of that one whatsoever. Although I have to say that, that I got a laugh Years and years after it had been published and, and uh, a, a young singer who would performed it came up to me and said, uh, they said how much they loved singing Hold Me, Rock Me. And they said, how clever of you to take the same thematic motif as Gate Gate and slow <laughs> it down. <laughs> My wife has noticed the same thing. <laughs> And I had never noticed that <laughs> until they mentioned that. And then I realized, oh, my goodness, I've just uh, plagiarized myself <laughs> un- unconsciously. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a moment. We're going to listen to a, a short clip from Hold Me, Rock Me. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
Now, many of the pieces that I've listened to from you have been accessible to high school, sometimes middle school voices. Uh, your piece, We Are One, is no exception to this. So I've listened to recordings of this piece from elementary school singers up to college choirs, including a mass virtual choir put together by the South End Boys and Girls Choirs, which our listeners should definitely go check out. So what do you think the appeal is of this song that everyone from all levels want to sing this piece? Hmm. I, I really enjoyed working on the text for this. Uh, this, this comes from a uh, virtually completely abandoned idea of creating this, this kind of mass where each movement would be in a different style and it would reflect a very kind of universal approach to spiritual matters. Uh, and I still have, uh, and this, this whole concept started probably 25, 30 years ago. And I have fragments of all the material that I've started for all the pieces, uh, none of which have come to fruition. They sit there as sketches. But We Are One was one of the sketches and my idea with, was originally that it would be the finale and it's written in a sort of a slow 12-8 gospel style. And uh, I was looking at translations of sacred texts from many traditions from around the world. And uh, I, found, uh, I found this selection of this, of this biblical text and I reinterpreted it in, uh, in a more universal sense. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a way, doing the lyrics for this came very easily because I had the original biblical text in front of me that uh, that I simply had my own take on it. And uh, so the music and the lyrics came together very quickly for that piece. And again, it's one of those, you never know, you never know which piece is going to be the one uh, that that has this kind of universal appeal, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with with you know all the rock bands in history. Like, what's going to hit the top for right. You know, I've I've written other pieces for choir that I've just loved, and I think, oh, this is this is going to have such a great appeal to so many levels of choirs, and I'll put it out there, and it'll get published, and nothing will happen. <laughs> you know, it's just it just simply doesn't catch on for whatever reason, and. And yeah, We Are One has has been great. And uh, to the publisher's credit, Alliance, you know, the original was SATB and it did very well. And then they said, well, what about an SSA version? What about an SAB? What about a TTBB version? You know, and, and I'm happy to do that, especially with music that's so adaptable. Right. And it's just been a thrill to to see the longevity of it and, and people getting behind that universal message. Yeah. All right, well, let's take a listen to We Are One. This is the Texas A&M University Commerce Choirs.
Okay, so lastly, let's turn to take down these walls. So I was really moved by the words of this piece. Take down these walls that divide us. Take down these walls so deep inside us. With all your heart and soul, reach out and make us whole. When all resistance falls, take down these walls. So what walls do you think people are putting up inside their hearts that you're wanting them to take down? Well, the song was written uh, with the well. The song was written for some very specific walls uh, in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, this was when the, uh, the you know the, the the Republicans were talking about initially about a ban on all Muslims entering the United States and also building the wall to Mexico. Right. So the idea of walls was was very strong in all of our consciousness. And uh, I had been invited to be the uh, music director for the um, Un Universalist Unitarian Musicians Network Conference, uh, which I had done a number of years ago, which is just fantastic because it's just full of great musicians and great folks. And this year, uh, this was 2017, and it was being held in Arlington, Virginia, which of course is you know almost a stone's throw from the White House, is right. just across the river from from Washington, where all this stuff goes on. So, and the theme of the conference was using the idea of walls as a metaphor, exactly as you presented it. What walls are we building up in our own hearts, and and how can we examine that? And I thought, well, I have to write something. I mean, I have to write something on, on this theme that, that we can do as a, as a choir together and that we can sing together. So, uh, so the lyrics were very much about starting with the idea of literal walls and then looking at, at how, do we, how do we erect our own walls and how do we keep people out or keep reality out? How can we allow that? in and how can we allow people in and how can we al allow our walls to be more porous? Uh, but at the same time, recognizing, you know, we have to have smart boundaries around things, but not to the exclusion of keeping everything out. Right. And that was the idea for the lyric. Yeah. I like the idea of, of the porous wall where you can keep those safe boundaries, but still let people in and still let ideas in. I think that's a, a really great image. Speaking of images, so your music video for this piece with the City Soul Choir features a young man signing the lyrics uh, along with the choir. So I see this as an attempt to break down the wall for those with hearing disabilities. Uh, more importantly, for those of us without such disabilities to see past our own walls. So what led to the decision to make him the focus of this video? Well, actually, that was a circumstance that had nothing to do with me. That was after we had released our own YouTube video of uh, Lisa Dunn doing the solo at the concert. Uh, and that was also on our latest CD. Um, a longtime friend of mine, Vesta Giles, who is a filmmaker, uh, she had a budget to do a, a short film um living up in Kamloops and she wanted to do a film that was a uh, a riff on the idea of take down these walls so she wrote that entire script of you know the protesters mm -hmm. they um you know protesting what we don't know who they're protesting but it's really about you know let's protect our environment 
let's be kind to each other and to have the signing go on at the same time. And that was entirely her idea. Uh, and she had emailed me and said, you know, can I use your song to make a film? And of course I said, yes, please. That would be fantastic. Uh, so, you know, you sort of follow the trail of that. And it's, it's, it's always wonderful to me how, how one thing leads to another, uh, how mm. connections get made. Uh, you know, so the, so the source of an inspiration, because I happened to be doing a conference in Arlington to writing the song, to it appearing on our album, to Vesta taking it and doing a film about it. It's a, it's a wonderful chain of events, I think. Yeah, it's a very powerful video. Uh, I'll definitely be sharing that on our Movable Dough listeners page on oh, Facebook. Uh, let's take a listen to the City Soul Choir performing Take Down These Walls. All right, so Brian, what projects are you working on now besides <laughs> cartooning? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I recently finished a commission for a, a wonderful choir in Victoria called Sing Your Joy Young Adult Chorus. Uh, and they commissioned me for a piece back uh, in the spring uh, to be completed this summer. So that gave me, fortunately gave me a focus because uh, I, I learned in a hurry that, you know, if I don't have a choir to write for of my own, or if I, if I don't have an active commission, I'm not the type to necessarily sit down and just write choral music for the sake of doing it. Uh -huh. uh, and I mean, I certainly have done in the past, but I've been so focused on it for so long. Uh, but now that we have our own choir happening here, the Capital Soul Choir in Victoria, um, I recently just finished an arrangement of uh, a tribute to Marvin Gaye. 
uh, just to get into the the soul element of the choir. So mm -hmm. it's you know it's it's not an original piece, but it's it's putting my arranger's hat back on again, and yeah. it just felt really good to be to be doing that. Um, so that's that's what I'm doing in my spare time when I'm not cartooning. Is <laughs> uh, doing the odd choral piece. <laughs> So if, if our listeners want to learn more about you and your music, where are you found online? Uh, they can uh, check out my website at uh, Brian Tate Music, all one word, dot C-A. And they can also have a look at our new choir's website, which is the capital C-A-P-I-T-A-L, capital soul choir, dot C-A. Awesome. Are you on any of the social medias? Um, well, I'm I'm on Facebook. The choir currently is, does not have a, a Facebook uh, presence, but we will be doing that uh, for sure when we have some things to post. So that will be coming. All right. Well, Brian Tate, it has been a wonderful opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. My guest today was composer Brian Tate. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Brian Tate, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Doe Listeners. If you have show or guest suggestions, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>